see. really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. But you're not as confused as him, are you? I mean, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel. The Come audience on. were laughing. So it became a comedy number. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try and understand and that means considering the books as a whole. You have another bonus episode this week, but this time I'm actually here. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, this seems so strange. <laughs> thank you, James, for doing all the all the work last time. Yes, as he said, I was being bullied by my own children and <laughs> having my lunch money stolen. But but no, so it was some crazy stuff. Let me not be able to talk to Joan. But thank you so much for doing it. I think it turned out great. Yeah, I was, boy, man, I was so nervous. <laughs> I did, because yeah. it was also my first time to edit an episode. And you did great. And, uh, but once you start editing, you become super critical of everything you say. I really feel sorry for you doing this every week. Because before I edited a thing, I was very, very happy with it and very happy with me. And then I got into it and I said, oh, Look, I'm talking again. <laughs> so let me cut that out. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But, but yeah, so this week we have another bonus episode for you. Not Joan, but we actually talked to Nigel Price. And a bunch of you may know Nigel from Alton's Library, which if you don't know about it, is a website that is pretty much the only online journal devoted to Wolf. We'll put a link in the show notes, but Nigel Price and Jonathan Laidlow have both been editing this site as a place to bring, you know, what Wolf scholarship there is in terms of, you know, short essays or position pieces on not just New Sun, but all of Wolf's work. And there's a lot of good stuff up there. For about 20 years, right? Yeah, for a long time. And Nigel certainly participated on the Earth list and people knew him from there. But I think he talks about it in what we recorded, but he and Jonathan just decided after a conference, I think one time, to put something together. And it's a great place. All the pieces up there are really interesting. They don't all necessarily agree, but that makes it even more fun. But if you haven't ever looked at what's up at Alton's Library, please take a look. Lots of people know him. Wolf certainly knew him. Wolf actually dedicated Home Fires and a Borrowed Man to him. So he certainly knew about Nigel, knew about how big a fan he was, but even beyond a fan about how he wanted to you know, get other people writing about him and talking about him. So Nigel's a fascinating guy. We've been friends on social media. You've actually met him, right? Yeah, yeah. Met him, met him at WendyCon and... We talk about that, but we had a we had a lot of excitement there. Well, yeah. So this is something that is really fun. We asked both him and Joan if there was a particular chapter that they'd be interested in talking about. Turns out they both kind of wanted to talk about Alton's library. So we figured since this is one of everyone's favorite chapters in a lot of ways, especially sort of for that nostalgic, sentimental reasons of, you know, when you first read Wolf and some of those early memories of the world, we thought it would be great to do a couple bonus episodes around this one with 
um, extra input from fun names that a lot of people have read, but maybe never heard their voices before. So I think with that, we'll probably get into it with um, one thing I can say, we will get back to our regular format next week when we'll go through chapter six, even after talking about this with both Joan and Nigel, we still had stuff to say. So we've still got a whole episode just doing our normal thing with chapter six, and we will get back to that and then things will be back to normal. But we're going to try and do bonus episodes like this with interviews with big names in the wolf world uh, every now and then, just because I think that's fun and it helps to sort of bring the community together a little bit more. Yeah. So no errata, no comments on the conversations on social media this time, but we will do that next time. We're banking them all. We may have to do an entire episode just on that. Uh, yet a third bonus episode. Soon we're going to be all, <laughs> soon the actual chapters will be bonus episodes. But, That's right. That's but for now, let's get on to Nigel. <laughs> incredibly pleased to have with us Nigel Price, who is one of the founders of Alton's Library, the online journal about Gene Wolfe, uh, which has been around for quite some time. When did it actually start, Nigel? I forget. Oh, some years ago, we, uh, Jonathan Laidlow launched it. It was his baby, his idea. And we held a, a conference at uh, Birmingham University, where he works, one weekend, and the Alton's Library Symposium was sort of the launch event and uh, I met, got to meet some of the people I'd only seen previously as names on the earth list and people delivered papers and we talked about Gene Wolfe and then Jonathan launched the site and uh, he needed a co-conspirator and uh, wrote me in and that was how I got involved <laughs> but that was oh, 10 15 years ago and it's still there. It's in. A, I know it's in a different form now, but it is. It's all still there. Does anyone still submit papers by any chance, or or small essays anymore, or is it kind of slowed off? Oh yes, oh yes. Well, it has slowed off, but that's because Jonathan and I have been busy. But I am working at this moment on a paper which uh, Michael Andre Drusi has submitted. Uh, some years ago, he published an essay called Post History One Hundred and One. And he has reviewed that material and written a new essay called Post History 201. And uh, he submitted that to us and I'm uh, tweaking it and putting together a list of questions that I would like him to answer and uh, clear up one or two points. And we hope to be publishing that in the next few weeks. Oh, wonderful. Wow. Yeah, he's got a sort of a, a, a new schema of, of uh, history in the Earth cycle, uh, the solar cycle and uh, prehistory, history, and post-history, and trying to put some numbers to those uh, epochs, which is an almost impossible task, but he has a great deal of uh, fun trying <laughs> and unearths some interesting things along the way. You and I first met uh, with Michael at WindyCon. 2008. Yeah, we, we, we sat, we talked in the lobby of the hotel, and then we finally all tottered off to bed. We said, well, we'll just get up and we'll go to breakfast together. So I got up and then met Michael downstairs and says, well, where's, where's Nigel? And yeah, he didn't come down, didn't come down. Well, maybe we should give him a call. No, no, give him a chance. You know? And so we waited. He said, well, maybe we better give him a call. <laughs> so we called and no answer. I said, well, I don't know. You know. Maybe he's just sleeping in. I'll just leave a message. And so and then we went off to breakfast and on the way back, there's a, an ambulance in front of the hotel only to find out about an hour later that it was you. Afraid so. <laughs> I'd been dehydrated by the long haul fright. And uh, if you get sufficiently dehydrated, you can have a seizure. And that's what I had. 
and ended up in the uh, Good Samaritan Hospital. That's that's a sort of funny funny story because they don't allow um, non-family members to visit, and Jean Wolfe's daughter Terry was concerned for me, and she turned up at the end of my bed, and I'm full of tubes and uh, pump full of morphine, and she sort of makes this pokes her head around the curtain and puts her finger to her lips, and the doctor's taking readings and things there by the bedside, and she's pulling faces and, and sort of wagging her fingers that say, don't tell them, don't tell them. And I'm thinking, wow, this morphine's really doing the trick. I'm seeing visions. <laughs> and, uh, and then the nurse says, oh, your niece is here to see you. And, <laughs> and uh, Penny finally dropped that this was how she managed to get around the, uh, the bureaucracy by telling them that uh, she was my niece. So I have a an unofficial niece in Illinois, which is great, that I didn't know about before I went there. <laughs> That's excellent. I'd always said that uh, if this were a, a wolf story, it would have turned out that you were a long-lost uncle. Yes, absolutely. WindyCon is, is a great, was a great place if you wanted to actually talk to Gene because everywhere else I've ever seen him, you know, he, he's, a, he's a big deal. You can't get close to him. He has, you know, Hell's Angel security guards protecting him and keeping people away. But you you go to WindyCon and he's just standing there figuring out, you know, where he wants to go next all by himself in the middle of the hallway. And it's because he's just a local writer there. It was it was wonderful, but all too brief. <laughs> it was a very strange thing that happened. I, I recorded the um, the talk that Gene gave it was a panel discussion on child soldiers, and it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great session. It didn't really take off, but I had a little uh, mini disc recorder, and I, I recorded that, and uh, I had this thing in my pocket, and it turned itself on, and without realizing it, I recorded meeting with Michael Andre Drusi in the dealer's room and Gene greeting him, and then I've actually got the soundtrack of our all having dinner together. Uh, you. James and uh, Michael Andre Drusi and Terry and Gina Rosemary and myself all having dinner in, in, in the hotel and the chinking of the plates and cutlery. It's, it's quite ghostly <laughs> and entirely unintentional. I didn't discover it till I got home and was uh, transcribing to di- analog to digital that I had this recording. It's actually wonderful. It's safely stored in Alton's library. <laughs> now, guys, you you very kindly invited me to talk about this uh, this chapter. Do you want to have a go at tackling it? First of all, do you have any particular parts of the chapter that are favorites, or the things that stand out to you, or puzzles, or questions, or anything at all about this one that sticks in your mind? I have all of those. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. This idea of the uh, the library that is bigger than the city that underpins the whole Commonwealth. It extends in every direction. It's the, it's the physical subconscious of Severian's world that underneath, in the same way that our memory uh, underpins our conscious mind. I see Alton's library as a sort of metaphorical uh, memory of the human race in this far distant uh, period of post-history. And uh, Alton is the curator and there's, I was going to save this as my, as my weird theory to uh, to throw in at the end, but I'll toss it in, in the beginning. He has a, he has a, a a voice that sounds like a bell, told inside a cave. 
Oh, okay. This is something that that also really uh, rings, so to speak, with with Craig. We'll play the uh, Curiositas Earthus music, and you shall present it. Curiositas Earthus. Okay, I've got a weird theory about that bell. If I'm right that the, the library is the memory of the human race, the, uh, the subconscious of the Commonwealth, then the blind librarian who remembers the location of every book is some memory of mechanism, because memory is not only about having the information, it's about the ability to find it. And uh, it's, a, it's a feature of, of, of aging that the two can be sometimes disrupted, that the information is still there, but we can't retrieve it. And memory also works by suggestion. One idea, one picture, one word suggests another. And our vernacular phrase, our idiom to describe that process is we say, ah, it's interesting you should say that, that rings a bell. And, master, and uh, master Alton is that bell. He is the human personification of that process. And that's why his voice sounds like this tolling bell echoing through the infinite stacks of the underground library. Because although he has lost his sight, he still has his mental image of the library. And there's this paradox about the library that is bigger. It contains books which are themselves libraries, which are bigger than the library which contains them. And you have the sort of the extra human dimension to that, that Alton has a virtual copy of this library within his own mind that is presumably as big as this infinite library in which he lives. So there's <laughs> reduplication, uh, and that fits in with some of what's said too about uh, fractals and genes, the way that they um, contain all the information in one small part. And that's a sort of a thematic resonance there. But Alton is also personification of Ecclesiastes. And uh, like uh, the philosopher in Ecclesiastes, he has studied books and wearied himself with that. And there is a sort of a paraphrase quote in the chapter of Ecclesiastes that there is no end to the making of books and much study is a weariness of the flesh and that's exactly the that's what Alton says he paraphrases that and that sort of embodies his experience and there's also you can see why that might have been a, an interesting um, background inspiration for Wolf because the author of Ecclesiastes constantly refers to what happens under the sun and of course, in the solar cycle, that's very. Um, oh, that's a good. That's a good reference. Very, very telling sort of reference. And um, the author of Ecclesiastes says at one point in chapter two, verses thirteen, fourteen, uh, then I saw the wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. I myself perceive also that one event happeneth to them all. Well, Alton's a sort of, again, interesting embodiment of, of that little micro story, that uh, parable, 
because he himself often of course has lost his sight he is a blind man but he's no fool uh, and he's the wise man because he's retained this knowledge even though he's lost his physical eyesight so he's ecclesiastes he's memory and of course there's this theory that he's also Borges, who was a librarian in buenos aires mm-hmm. and um, wrote about infinite libraries and uh, strange cities and if we take that as a an inspiration again for, for Walt's portrait of, of Nessus and the library that underpins it how fitting then for Master Alton also to be Borges who lost his sight and was a blind librarian so all those things tied up in a very Wolfian way but uh, you can't say it is any one of those specifically but all those images all tied up together I've just recently reread A Rose for Ecclesiastes by Roger Zelazny, and I'd love to be able to prove there was some tie up with that, but I can't. <laughs> I'll toss it in anyway, because it's such a, a, an intriguing blind alley to uh, for people to wander up. One thing that always uh, kind of provokes me about this tolling of the bell is that that very phrase comes up again in the uh in the book of wonders of earth and sky in the story of the student and his son, when it, it designates that the moment when they actually fire, they, right. they ambush and fire on the ogre in the, uh, in his labyrinth. And it rings off of his ship. It rings after on his ship, like the uh, tolling of a bell. The Navi Caputs. I can't help but want to draw the, a line between those two. Not only the the tolling of the bell, but also the labyrinth that he's in, okay. because you know, Borges is, himself is uh, is awesome, is often connected with labyrinths, and uh, I can't say that I know how they're connected. Well, well, obviously Borges wrote about labyrinths, but have you noticed how the process of recruiting uh, young people to become apprentices of the curators? is so closely mirrored in a solar labyrinth in the way in which young people are recruited to become maze runners. Uh, so yeah. in, in Wolf's mind, the two seem to be closely closely aligned. Often Mr. Smith invites groups mm. of children to inspect his maze, their visits timed so that they can be led to its center. There, inlaid upon a section of crumbling wall that at least appears ancient, mm. He points out the frowning figure of the Minotaur, a monster that, as he explains, haunts the shadows. And of course, we're reading the shadow of the torturer. Um, From far away, but not in the direction of the house, the deep bellowing of a bull interrupts him. Perhaps a straying guest might discover stereo speakers hidden in the boughs of certain trees. Perhaps not. Mr. Smith says he can usually tell in advance which children will enjoy his maze. They are more often boys than girls, he says, but not much more often. They must be young, but not too young. Classes help. He shows a picture of his latest, Ariadne, a dark-haired girl of nine. And so it it continues. And you compare that with the description of the recruiting of the children and the reading of the Book of Gold in... Uh, this chapter, I've never, you know, I, it, it never occurred to me to connect this uh, Ulton with uh, with that, but that 
that actually and had you connected um, this chapter with the chapter in peace where um, they visit the shop of Mr. Gold and see the books of gold. What do you suppose he's saying? Well, some of the books, some of the books in Mr. Gold's shop reappear in the library of Mr. Al of Master Alton. Which ones are those? Uh, well, the one, the, the book uh, with human, made of human skin and the book of gold that's referred to in Master Alton's story can, <laughs> by one interpretation, be the book that originally belonged to Mr. Gold, the bookseller, because it was a book of gold. Well, of course, yeah. Now, so peace would have been written. It was was written, you know, well before the uh, the book of the new sun. What do you what do you think this idea of books of gold, gold books? Well, there is in, in peace the, the the book that they're looking for is literally gold. There's a right. I'll just again, I was just reading it before we uh, started re recording, and uh, it's described as having a sort of a, a golden colored cover. But they have different meanings, though, right? I mean, this in that case, the book of gold is is the book that that, that hooks a, the child into you know part being part of the cult of of reading and book the cult of books. Why do you suppose he's using those that particular motif? And I and I agree that they probably are connected. But what do you suppose the connection is between the two? Why do you think an idea of a of a book of gold would seems to have just you know chimed round and around i think there are a number of things going on he loves books himself there's a short story is it the amaspasian inheritance where there's a bookshop um full of uh, books that uh, you, you wander around i mean he clearly loves books um the idea that they are addictive that you get hooked as a young person and then your shape for life is something that matches his own experience insofar as the young boy in the uh, the island of dr death and other stories you know the kid who is reading avidly reading the mm. science fiction magazines in the drugstore wolf has said a number of times that that was him that was what he used to do those books were for him. Um, he read a collection of uh, pulp uh, editions of H.G. Wells, and they made a huge impact on him. They got him drawn to science fiction and works of imagination. And you have that uh, Wellsian episode in the, the Mines of Saltus, and all sorts of other places you see... Um, Wells's vision of the far future in the time machine, the um, the animal creatures of the island of Doctor Moreau, which are mirrored in the the uh, animal people who serve the autarch that we meet in in the fourth volume of the book of New, New Sun. Wells's influence is there throughout um, Gene Wolfe. So the Book of Gold, I think, is um, for first approximation the works of H.G. Wells as he encountered them and as he became addicted to them. But it's also books shaping his life and uh, rereading the opening chapters of uh, The Shadow of the Torture, which I was doing today. I'm constantly tripping over books that Wolf has read. 
you can't say, oh, he's borrowing from this. But you can't <laughs> help being aware that those young boys playing in the graveyard are Tom Sawyer and his friends. They're Pip, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the mist, the marsh, and the gravestones. It's Pip at the beginning of Great Expectations. And so on constantly, you're reminded that this is a world, Earth is a world that is made of books. And no wonder then that it is underpinned by this vast library uh, of Master Alton, because that's how Jean's mind works. And uh, it's overflowing. And the number of books is far bigger than the fictional world that he's created. <laughs> but there it is. And it's shaped Alton and shaped him. The one thing that really struck me this time when I was reading it was absolutely that love of books, that real emphasis on um, the love of books but and being shaped by books. But when we find out more about Alton's own history and trajectory, it goes very far away, I think, from the that sort of, um, in some ways, maybe romanticized um, love of books that we get because Alton, of course, stops reading. Um, you know, he stops reading books and he becomes um, sort of progressively sort of less interested in uh, what in the contents of them and more uh, more and more into his, what he says is his real purpose, which is just preserving the physical things themselves. But I was even telling James the other day that that one thing that struck me this time was how even his education and his reading of books starts off the way I think all of us do. And he even calls it an error that we read by, by sort of following the things that we love. Um, and then he says, but you know, that was, that's what I did in my youth. And he develops, then he's like, then I started to read just by topic and I'd exhaust a topic. Then he started reading physically of sort of taking here and just reading all the shelves that went out. And then at a certain point he says, I even realized that maybe reading wasn't my purpose. Um, and, and that's when sort of the light clicks on. Um, and, that difference struck me this time um, of how Alton starts, I think, as that sort of, uh, you know, wish fulfillment that we all have of wouldn't it be great if we could just live in this library and read. But he takes it a totally different way and Alton becomes more complicated. Um, and maybe even that idea of just sitting there and reading and loving books that that by itself, that's not uh, enough. And that's that that may actually be something of a dead end. I mean, that describes the, the practical vocation of the librarian organising the, the information. And in a book whose hero is as memorious as Severian, it's, I think it's significant that the tutelary deity underpinning the Commonwealth is someone who organises memory. In the passage uh, from Peace that I was referring to, Weir goes there with a librarian to meet a bookseller. And so this yoking of the, the books in the stacks and the librarian are all uh, obviously a sort of a, a theme that interested him and that he repeats. And uh, I was going to read you out the bit, the bit about uh, the colouring of the book that, uh, that, that Weir is after. And Gold describes it as gold coloured, he says, is what I should have said not gold leaf, a copper compound. And the business of the sort of the physical um, properties of the books is, is something that fascinates uh, gold. 
uh, and is recapitulated in the figure of, of Alton. As you say, he has this, this journey from reader to curator, um, with the irony that these books are rotting away and the people who are reading them um, are disappearing. And the whole library is going to be flooded in the very near future. It's a, it's a very gothic, gloomy sort of image. Uh, you know, that connection between the library and memory, I think, is, is, is really insightful. When you consider, you know, how important the concept of memory and what it means is in almost all of books, of Wolf's books. But um, I really think that his, his switch from reading to suddenly uh, curating books, taking care of books, uh, restoring books, is a metaphor for being a writer that at some yes, point you, you stop and you, yeah. you have to, you become less interested in actually consuming and more in, interested in, you know, something else. Yes. And, but, you know, Bolton says even when he began to do that and he made all his plans that his old habit of reading would, would haunt him. He, he keep, kept falling back into it and until he uh, went blind. I absolutely agree, James. I, I was going to, go and say that that, it, that, that autobiographical element of, of Alton as, as the uh, proxy for the author. I think that's ab absolutely right. Do you, do you want to hear another absurd theory about the bell? Yes, absolutely. Yes. There's, there's still other parts of it. Well, I also want to, yeah, definitely, because there's also some other things about the first time it's mentioned um, that might, might take this in a different direction as well. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more. <laughs> All right. The uh, sorry, I hadn't, hadn't thought of this, but you're, you're talking about the the, the bell. Um, the um, what's the uh, the the creature who embodies scandal in book six of the Fairy Queen? The blatant um, beast yeah. has a a, a a mouth that's a blatant like, beast. Yeah, blatant beast. That's right. He's described as sounding like a like a, uh, having a voice like bells tolling. My weird theory concerns literary precedents for books about quasi-medieval cultures and the judicial role of formal torturers. That seems an odd thing, but as a, as a lover of Wolf's writing, I became aware that although I was familiar with heroes being tortured if they were soldiers or spies, and they say, you won't get the secret from me or whatever, that's a very different kind of uh, context and scenario to the one in which we see a, an organized guild of torturers working as part of a bureaucratic legal system in the Commonwealth. And when I thought a bit about it in those terms, I thought there aren't many instances that I can think of where there are literary precedents for that sort of uh, setup. However, I've recently been reading, and this you'll start to laugh at this point, I suspect, uh, Victor Hugo's uh, Notre Dame de Paris, which in, in English we usually translate as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And in that book, there are detailed descriptions of judicial tortures, of a torturer, the public torturer, flogging Quasimodo, uh, and then of uh, stringing up Esmeralda on a gibbet. And of that torturer being not trying to get secrets out of people, but being part of a medieval judicial system. But it's just his job. 
he's doing it as a nine to five. And the more I read uh, Victor Hugo, the more I thought his Paris is a prototype or one of the prototypes for Nessus. And his torturers are somewhere in the background of Severian's Guild. And is it a coincidence that Quasimodo, his job is a bell ringer and he has mm. actually lost not his sight, but his hearing because he has uh, worked too close to the bells and they have deafened him. So that's completely off the wall. I can't prove a thing and it's pretty stupid theory. <laughs> but I think that Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris is an important contribution, contributor to the description of Nessus and to the role of the Guild of Torturers as described in the Book of the New Sun. And it's got bells as well, so what more? What? I like that. I do too. I like the, uh, especially with the, the notion that, that, um, you know, he's got to hide out quite so, you know, just a lot like poor Olden hiding out, well, not hiding, but, but being down the, in the uh, darkness. Another character, the, the cleric in The Hunchback of Notre Dame um, has a very similar experience of reading all the books that he can and still not being satisfied and wanting something more. Mm. It's partly analogous to the career uh, of Master Alton, though in the case of the cleric, he discovers that what he really wants is Esmeralda, and uh, Master Alton is a little more refined in his uh, his appetites. But it's interesting that that theme is repeated in both those novels. That's interesting, yeah. And I, I have to admit that thinking here of the library, and I may be more sold on, on there being something more significant to Alton's blindness um as sort of a commentary on on here but but it goes back to something that i've been thinking about with severian's memory and how the first time that his memory is discussed it's talked about recreation and i've always been somewhat convinced that one of the reasons wolf gave him this power was not just to give him this kind of like a superpower but was really because whenever the memory rituals come into play it's not just that he remembers their lives but he actually can make people come to life again inside them um, metaphorically or literally, I, I'm not exactly sure, but but so the kind of memory then that Severian would have, this living memory of giving things, kind of making them come back and living and feeling their memories again and knowing the real significance of the memories again, that's a much more animated and vivacious kind of memory than, you know, even Alton's wonderful enjoyment of all these books, but where they just sit there and are, you know, never touched and never read. Um, it's, it's the difference between kind of, you know, a living memory and an archive. And, and so there's, there's, there's some kind of interesting contrast there, I think. Um, but whole different set of issues, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, about the first time, and, and I was curious, Nigel, if you had any thoughts about this, that, that when the bell comes back, when he mentions the bell and his voice is the bell, and I thought that it was really elegant the way you described that sort of, you know, ringing of memory at the beginning. When Severian mentions that at the beginning of this chapter, he talks about how it immediately brings back all sorts of other memories for him. Um, and he feels, he, I mean, it goes back both to the, the scene with Vodalus, um, but also this rather dark image where he says, I felt that he and I were dead mm. and that the darkness surrounding us was grave soil pressing in on our eyes, grave soil through which the bell called us to worship at whatever shrines may exist below ground. 
And then he recalls the the livid woman who had seen dragged from her grave rose before me so vividly that I seemed to see her face in the almost luminous whiteness of the figure who spoke. So when he hears this, when he hears Alton's voice and that bell, that bell starts to, again, kind of have, it's connected with death, but also of resurrection where the woman isn't just being dug up out of the ground again, but she's actually being called to worship just like they are in um, these, these, you know, as he sort of says, these underground shrines, whatever shrines exist underground. But it's a, it's a pretty cool image that it's not just that memory here would be, you know, if, if his voice is that kind of, you know, call to memory, call to remembering things, it actually is bringing things back to life as well. I, and I think that, that definitely ties in with the idea of him being a sort of paradigm of the author. Wolf creates yeah. characters who speak and justify themselves. And although it's not actually in the Book of the New Sun, it, it's, it's in the Castle of the Otter. One of the most amazing pieces of writing that I think that Wolf ever put down is that chapter where he gets the characters in the Book of the New Sun to each to tell a joke. <laughs> and they tell a joke that is appropriate to their character and they tell it in an idiom that is appropriate to their age and, and, and era. And it's astonishing that they have walked outside the confines of the novel to which they belong and yet still have this independent life. And they can entertain you and they can tell you jokes like guests at a, a, a literary dinner party, a symposium that exists only in Wolf's mind and on the pages where he uh, lets us in to see and hear the things that, that, that he can hear, that he brings them to life in that way. And it's supposed astonishing uh they are sort of the eidolons of his life that they take on this separate life of, of, of their own yeah i like it that he that he that wolf says the people say there's not enough jokes in my book so i have i bring them on in here to, to, to all, each tell a joke he loved jokes i think there are lots of jokes in his books <laughs> but they're quite they're just <laughs> quite subtle yeah they really are yeah I'm actually curious, you had mentioned that phrase about the sort of fractal nature of the library. And he does mention the first thing that comes to mind is that cube, which I, I assume is some kind of data storage you know, device, but the, that Alton mentions definitely as a kind of wondrous device. But the, the idea of the library as a kind of the fractal memory system um, ties, of course, immediately to the discussion they have about the memory ritual and how much of a person do you have to eat before you gain their whole memory. Do you see that theory or that idea showing up in in other aspects of this chapter or, or in other parts of the library um, beyond just the short little discussion about that ritual? Well, you ha you have this strange idea that, well, looking at the my understanding of the history of how the Book of the New Sun was written is that it's, it started off with this idea of the wordplay, that Gene has always been very conscious of his name and its significance. Sorry, I still talk about him as if he was still with us. I wish he were, but he, the, the fact that his name was Gene in the fifth head of Cerberus, he's fascinated with genetic experiments and cloning and so, so forth. And the idea that the human body is um, a coded uh, repository of genetic information that we've inherited from our forebears and pass on to our descendants 
that was something that, that hugely intrigued him. And the idea of the, one of the central sort of founding inspirations for the what grew into this huge novel was the play on words that Thecla, Severian first meets Thecla when she is in a cell in the Matakin Tower. But through the uh, Analect Alzabo, she will become eventually encoded in the cells of Severian's body. And she is still trapped in a cell, but it's a cell hmm. inside Severian. And she becomes part of him, and their memories become conjoined, along with those of other autarchs that have gone before um, Severian. So yes, I think having this co this conversation in the library is absolutely thematically key. The human body as this library of genetic information that has passed down through all of history and still in these end days of, of the Commonwealth retains all that information that any small part of us and it would, would contain all that information that the whole of us uh, embodies. So the human as a walking library is, a, I think, I think it's, it's one of the founding ideas of the novel. It also made me start thinking about how the Brown book functions, um, that it's one simple book, but it's also kind of a library of its own that works in similar ways where you have pieces of little stories that when you can unpack one of those myths, you can find all these connections to these other stories that are also holding smaller versions of other stories. Um, that yeah, I just the, the idea of fractal memory. As soon as you said that, it just had all these possibilities for the rest of the book that I thought was great. That's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so much about the the infinite ancientness of the Commonwealth and of the Earth in which Severian lives, and there's so much about its culture, its religion, it, its outlook, which you get not from the main narrative but from those inset stories um, of, of the Brown Book. And the Brown Book is a book within a book, uh, which is exactly the kind of thing that we have been talking about in the context of Alton's library. What about, how do you pronounce um, Kibi, Kaibi, Kubi, Kuba, Kaba? I don't know. Um, in, the, uh, in the iconography of, of the website Alton's library, uh, we agreed from the start that Jonathan was going to be Master Alton, which meant that I had to be <laughs> Kibby or Saibi, except I didn't know how to pronounce my own name, which was problematic right from day one. <laughs> um, I don't know. I know that he is named after a saint, but by the same uh, token, his name suggests other things like cybernetics and so forth, which don't seem to have any obvious resonance in this chapter, but is at least to my mind, present in his, unhelpfully present in his name. <laughs> my suspicion has always been that it's it's Sibby, but I can't prove that. Why do you like um, Sibby? Because it's, if we're talking of uh, ancient saints and if we're taking it mm -hmm. that's, that the Commonwealth is modelled on Byzantium, Saints Cyril, who evangelised the, um, the Slavs and created the Cyrillic alphabet, was a Byzantine uh, missionary who was sent out uh, to the to the pagan heathens in the in, in the north, 
and Cyril, that's how his name is, is pronounced, and Sibi would therefore fit in with sort of Greco-Russian uh, orthography. That That's sort of behind my thinking. But it's a pure stab in the dark, like most of the stuff I sprout. Well, that's probably better than we had. Um, Sibi, we were, I was convinced for a while that there had to be a way that Sibi, if you pronounced it in Welsh, would be similar to a, a word for wolf or dog or puppy. And it is oh, kind of close to puppy. Yeah, that, it was big if. Like there, yeah, if it was Welsh, it would be kubu, wouldn't it? Kubu, yep, yep. And then it's like there's... Kumri. Yeah. Um, so there, and then there's a word shoot. I've forgotten what it is. I'll have to find it for the next one. But there is a word for puppy that's very similar, which was connecting me that I know sometimes, especially on the wolf list, some people have thought that that Sibby was supposed to be something of a stand in for wolf um, as a not as a, obviously a full blooded character, but kind of the, you know, the apprentice, the person learning from the Borges figure. Then if you have that as a puppy, then <laughs> it works. It, it, it's, but it's yet another one of those speculative things that takes many, many ifs stringed up together before it starts to work. But I really like the, the, uh, the Cyrillic alphabet um, connection there. That seems really quite more interesting. Craig, you just sent me off this, 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 this wonderful uh, thought train. We did in the previous <laughs> chapters, you've got Triskelly running off down the corridors that we later know are the corridors of time and you're likening Sibby to um, a dog stroke wolf in that paradigm oh, yeah. and so you've got sort of again repeated motif of tunnels and underground the dog wandering finding mm-hmm. its master yeah. uh, we later find out of course he has found master Palaimon hasn't he? Uh, master Marubius, rather, mm-hmm, hasn't mm-hmm. In, in the tunnels and joined joined up with him in the same way that Sibi has uh, become apprentice master Alton. What about the Alton Alton quotes? quotes? Uh, he, he has some quotes yeah. of Foucault, uh, of the trail of ink, there is no end. And then he has... A- I think that first one is the Ecclesiastes one. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.12. 12, because he says, of the trail of ink, there is no end. Master Alton told me, or so a wise man once said. He lived long ago. Mm. What would he say if he could see us now? I think that the, the wise man is the philosopher of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, in Ecclesiastes, it does start, yeah, uh, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And um, it, that's that certainly fits for a library that is coming to the end of its tenure. Absolutely. I, what do you make of the second uh, quote? Another said, a man will give his life a man will give his life to the turning over of a collection of books. But I would like to meet the man who could turn over this one on any topic. Who's that <laughs> quoting? That's there, I have not been able to find that quote anywhere. It does sound a little bit like Samuel Johnson's quote, a man will turn over half a library to make one book. But I don't think that that is, an, <laughs> that, that is a word-for-word quote, quote from anybody. Johnson, that's um, very plausible. Did you have a theory, Craig? Beyond what James had talked about, how similar it was to Johnson, I haven't found anything. Um, I've looked around quite a bit, um, looked at some things that other people have suggested on the Earth List and on Reddit and places like that. And I, I don't really, Johnson's the best one. And I think what you've talked about with Ecclesiastes is the closest I can get to the first one. I know it's it's attributed to um 
James, you said Foucault at some place, but I'm I'm not sure. I I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's if that's right. Plus that one that one just doesn't have as much resonance for me. So and I, I guess it would depend on which Foucault that was, um, the the recent one or the further one. I don't know. So there's there's the 19th century Foucault and the the 20th century French philosopher Foucault. So why don't I give my theory now? Curiositas Urthus. And uh, you're not going to like it. I, I promise you, y'all aren't going to like it. But when you think about it, you think about it. I think it'll kind of have some resonance here. My theory is that Olten is in league with Vodalus and Thea. As, uh, as Craig pointed out, there's when Severian meets Olten, he has this um, epiphany. And it it's kind of reminds me of his epiphany when he sees the, uh, the picture of the astronaut on the moon, where he looks at it. He doesn't know anything about it, supposedly, but he immediately imagines that this picture belongs out in some mountain forest, leaning up against a tree, surrounded by trees everywhere. What he's really recognizing is, well, this picture, this picture is of the moon, because that's to him, that's what the moon looks like. So when he meets Olten, then he says, the livid woman I had seen dragged from her grave rose before me so vividly that I seemed to see her face in almost luminous whiteness of the figure who spoke. So right there, Severian is, has a, is drawing a connect, direct connection between Olten and the woman who was dragged from her grave. Even my first reading, before I had understood how to read Wolf, I expected this to foreshadow something, but... No, there was no big reveal coming about Olten, his connection to Severian or the exhumed corpse. When Severian sees the young woman that they pulled out of the grave, it's because Olten has had that ritual already. Severian starts reading uh, from the Book of Wonders in Sky, and he reads at random a, a quote, by means of which a picture might be graven with such skill that the whole of it should be destroyed, might be created from a small part and that a small part might be any part. So once again, he's, he has a kind of epiphany and for a reason he does not know the woman he saw exhumed the other night comes to mind. He thinks maybe because of the word graven, but when, when uh, Wolf has someone suppose an answer, it's almost always the inaccurate answer. Severian brings up the corpse eaters to Olden. Now this is the first inclination we've gotten that Severian has any idea that Vodalus and company to what we're up to that night when they were robbing a grave. He knows that some people mix parts of bodies with a corpse and a drug, and it lets them, quote, relive the lives of their victims. And Olton says, it's unwise to know too much about these practices, though when I think of sharing the mind of a historian like Lohman or Hermas, and Severian says, in his years of blindness, he must have forgotten how nakedly our faces can betray our deepest feelings. By the light of the candles, I saw his twisted in agony of desire that out of decency I turned away. His voice remained as calm as a solemn bell. Knowlton continued, But from what I once read, you are correct, though I do not now recall that book you hold treats of it. And Severian says, Master, I give you my word, I would never suspect you of such a thing. He's, a, he's an exultant. In these first seven chapters, we're only going to have met four exultants, and three of them we know 
are working for for Erebus and Abaya. And Zoltans tend to be riddled with revolutionary feelings because the the Megatherians are the conservative element. If the world and the civilization is destroyed, all of their um, class prominence is going to go with it. And as you've said, the library is going to go down with it. And that's the end. You and I both have some, uh, we both got some negative thoughts about Ulton this time around, James. <laughs> well, I think that, I think that, you know, I didn't, until you, I was talking to you, I didn't really have those negative feelings. But then I said, yeah, he could be a, a darker character. Uh, and, and, but when I, when I came up with this, I realized that this connection I had to Rudison's conversation at the end didn't have anything to do with Ulton. That had to do with something else to do with the library. And um, so I was running down a, a, a dead path when I was thinking of Rudison. Other than that, you know, if he's, if, if um, Father Aniri, Father Anire has him spying for, on the uh, curators, who does he have spying on? Interesting. Well, you know by now that I'm usually I'm usually skeptical of any theory the first time I hear it. <laughs> so I always look for. Um, I'm although you've you've come up with a couple things that made me stop the first time. So so you definitely get kudos for that. But um, I the thing that would make it work for me is that idea of the exultants that we meet mostly being uh, you know worried about change. Like like that fits a bigger arc that that would connect it to me um so on that side since we have Vodalus and thea already and we're, we're gonna know some others that that part might work i wonder though like because i still feel i if those connections and, and making him remember the grave robbers and and it reminding him of the memory the memory ritual if if that's more sort of not precognition, but just sort of recognition of, of, you know, these ideas are connected and, and, you know, that, that memory is going to work in a certain way that can be profound, um, in ways that can honestly bring things back to life. Um, that, that, that might be the bigger connection with that section to me. So it might be more metaphorical than, than literal. You know, I, I, in, I think it's in Citadel, uh, the autark where that they have a discussion, kind of discussion about the nature of the autark and that the autark is the representative of the people among the, the these uh, upper classes and it's a very it's 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 kind of an old monarchical um, view of uh, you know pro monarchical view of a king that the the barons are there are the interests of the powerful and the educated and the merchants and the king is the representative of the people. So it, it, it would be a very it would be a very populist view of of authority and of the of the classes that exist in the Commonwealth. And I think I think that the thing that really drags me is that is this re revelation when he sees on his face when he's discussing this ritual. That you know, while he speaks of it as being noxious, and should, it's the first time when you re, when Severian really sees a type of emotion going on underneath uh, Olton's, you could call it a facade, or just his his general um, uh, presentation of distant coolness. I think that's really interesting, and I think that is the key sentence, uh, James. I'm I'm sure you're right on that. My my only hesitation is whether what's um, Master Alton is desiring 
is to recapture the, the memory of someone he has lost because he is so ancient um, that he longs for some past love, some lost wife or other individual. And that what embarrasses Severian is not that he detects some political allegiance so much as he sees this very human emotion that um, Alton has lost someone he loved and longs to get them back. And the desire is there on his face and he's naked and it's embarrassing in the same way that sometimes we embarrass when people show strong emotions, when they weep at a, a funeral, whatever. So you think maybe when he's talking about those those uh, historians that he would like to reconnect with, what he would really, he's really thinking of, of is maybe someone much more personal in particular. Well, that's that's what I that's how I had, had taken it. That this this man who's in his own personal, he's given his life to librarianship and study and archivism and being a curator, but he's also a person. And to me, that's one of the defining notes of this book. That it's about things that are um, huge and cover vast periods of time and uh, galactic empires and everything that, that seems to dwarf individual people. And yet constantly, time after time, there are these flashes into the inner lives of the characters when you realise that they're people like us and they have real um, emotional lives going on. It's like the uh, the scene later on in um, Sword of the Lictor where uh, Severian is going around the, the slum and uh, is taken into this hovel where the sickly child is uh, is dying uh, of, of disease. And there's this just very tender moment where he heals the child and he can't save the world, but his heart goes out to this, this, this suffering child. And it's that, that sense that amidst all this gigantic, overwhelming, um, mind-bending um, splendor of, of the perspectives of the Book of the New Sun. There are these very individual human stories. A woman cold in a cell, a child dying in a hovel, an old man underground missing someone. It's those sorts of moments that, that provide a, a human warmth to what is an otherwise um, a science fiction epic. That, that, that's how I read it. Well, I'm certainly still going to be thinking of every exultant come up. I'm going to be thinking more about that. Any other part of this chapter in particular? I know you said you reread it, but is there a, so is there a part that struck you this time? Any new feelings or, or new things you noticed? So much of it. It's <laughs> that Alton is a, is, is a buried man. He lives underground in the dark. Um, as you've said, you pointed out, we start the book with a woman being dragged from a grave and here, underground, this pale form, he's pale because he never gets out in, in, into the light, is this sort of uh, spirit of, of memory, of regret, of organisation. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what struck me, this uh, infinite library underpinning the, uh, the Commonwealth with Alton as its abiding spirit, this sad 
tragic, sightless uh, figure. It's the, the paradox of the uh, of, of of Earth that it's grand and magnificent, but also pathetic and dying. Um, Alton seems to embody that very well, dramatically. You know, Severian comes away from this meeting with uh, with kind of a very uh, ambivalent feeling of the same by, as well. He he says that he's uh, visited the library many times, but he's never, <laughs> never gone down to the basement again. Earlier, earlier on, James, you referred to Father, well, you called him Inaya, and I was thinking of him as Father Inere, Inere because he seems he's... he's I never he's, know how, to, like I said, I've never, I almost never say these words out, these yeah. names out loud. Yeah. It's always a big conversation about how to. But his name, his name. When I the first time I saw his name, um, I, I, I was brought up in a, in a school where we learnt Latin at the age of eight, and Father Inere has a name that looks like the um, the infinitive of a Latin verb, and the Latin verb that it looks like the infinitive of is ineo, inere, ine. Initus, the, the verb meaning to enter or to begin, and oh, he's Janus, god of doors. Yes, absolutely, and, and therefore he's the important sort of hinge between the old era of Earth and the sort of the new era post the inundation that, that is to come. So, seeing his name, um, the way you pronounce it, seems quite important to me as the the one who uh, is the entry, is the beginning of uh, what's about to come, as opposed to um, Alton, who is, seems very much the embodiment of the past and caring for, for things that are, are dead and gone. Yeah, I always think of the word ultimate when I think of his name. Yes, yeah, that's interesting. Well, Nigel, thank you very much for talking to us. This is a special chapter to so many people, so it's great to hear your take on it and, and your experience this time around rereading it, which I think is particularly fun, not just not just as an expert, but as somebody, you know, doing like we are, rereading it and and coming back one more time. Yeah, thank you. So thank you, thank you very much. Thank you both for inviting me. I've loved having the opportunity of discussing it with you. It's been a joy and a privilege. Well, wonderful. And you can check out, or please do, if you haven't read um, everything that's on Alton's library, which I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this have by this point, do check it out. Um, and um, are, is there anything else you're working on right now, Nigel? Because I know that you have always a number um, of different yes, projects. Yes, I'm hoping to finish a, a novel, which is uh, has the working title, The, um, the Limehouse Cannibal, about 19th century scientists investigating um, scientific mysteries. And uh, if I ever get that finished, it'll be a, a glad day. But that's that's uh, what I'm working on. That's wonderful. Well, again, thank you very much. And I hope we can talk to you again sometime, but I hope everyone else has had as much fun as we have. Thanks, Nigel. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, James. That was great. That was, I hope you, everybody enjoyed that. And once again, next week, we're going to go back to the regular schedule and we're going to talk about chapter six, the way we normally do. And 
I think the week after that, we're talking to Michael. Yes, Michael Andre Driussi, who has a new book coming out. Uh, if you don't, if you don't recognize that name, he is the one who wrote Lexicon Earthus, the one reference book that is about the New Sun universe with all of the odd vocabulary words, with a lot of work on characters and scenes and icons and images and everything. Commentary. <laughs> Exactly. So Michael has a new book coming out, Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, A Chapter Guide, and will be out November 10th. And to keep things in the spirit of our bonus episodes, we talked to him. We've actually already done it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we chatted about a lot of things with that book coming up pretty soon, too. Um, but we will actually get another chapter or two in before we get to that point. He has his own uh, Curiositus Earthus entry. He does. As well, so. He does. But that's coming out November 10th. If you're listening to this, you are the target audience, the target market. So <laughs> go ahead. You can pre-order it. Um, available on Kindle. You can get a paper copy as well. Otherwise, if you have questions or comments, honestly, Nigel has been listening and reading along to the comments on the Facebook page. So if you want to ask Nigel a question about anything that he said, I'm sure he will answer. Feel free to post something up on the page on Facebook. And like I said, you don't even have to tag him. He'll read it <laughs> because he's been reading other things. Otherwise, Twitter, we actually did start an Instagram page, which is fun just to mm -hmm. do a little bit of wolf covers. And I sort of, we were talking about, you know, what, what reason would we have to do an Instagram page? You know, how many must-ask pictures can you can you put out there? Probably a lot. Probably a lot more than you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought it would be fun in the end to, you know, maybe start our own collection of the book covers that mm -hmm. you can find in different countries. So that's maybe what we can do up there. But we started that. And then if you want to email us, if you're not into the social media thing, rereadingwolf at gmail.com. And we will answer you both through email and on the air. But I hope you enjoyed listening to Nigel. We certainly had a great time talking to him. And we'll see you next time. Yeah, good night. don't know how difficult it is to find people in rural Wiltshire in the west of England who want to talk about uh, uh, Wolf at half past 12 at midnight. Well, you don't know how hard it is to find people in rural Indiana who want to talk about Wolf at, at any time of the day. <laughs>